Welcome, everyone, to the MOH podcast. I'm Jim Patton, your host. Uh, here at the uh, Ministry of Helps, we've made these podcasts available to you at uh, places like MOH.org, uh, iTunes, uh, Google, uh, Podbean, which is the place where we actually store these. Uh, you can you can go to Podbean.com or you can go to the Podbean app if you want to listen on your, your phone or your iPad, any, any iOS or Android device. And we've got a, a new uh, series today starting. It's just a two-parter. And uh, there's really not a whole lot I can say without giving anything away. But let's put it this way. It has to do with, uh, it's called a Divine Order in Truth. And it, it tells, Winky's going to talk about the, the order or sequence in which truth is revealed in the Scripture. That's about all I can say without getting any, uh, you know, like I said, giving anything away or, or getting more specific. Uh, it's a two-parter. You don't get the whole thing this time, so you'll have to tune in next week for the second part. But uh, get ready now for part one of Divine Order and Truth from Winky Prattney. We are looking at a study that originally began as a study called Counseling the Cult. And uh, I want to read you, first of all, a statement from a historian, a Christian historian, who wrote, this was published around 1868, so this is over a hundred years ago this statement was written. It was written by an English historian, as far as I know, had not been to the United States. And he was describing the Roman Empire just before it fell. He wrote a book called Seekers After God and mentioned three of the most famous moralists of Roman times. These were men like Epictus. Tychus and uh, who were the others? Uh, Seneca was another. These men were the most moral men of their time. Now, if we see bad things going on today in society, it'd, it would be wrong for us to imagine that only Christians are concerned about those things. If Plato lived today, if Seneca lived today, they would be concerned about some of the same things. Uh, and so, around the time of the Apostle Paul, men lived who were moralists. They were people who were concerned about the quality of morals and virtue in a society. And this was in Rome, Imperial Rome, shortly before it fell. And here is the description of that society. It was an age at once of atheism and superstition. Strange to say, the, whole, the two things usually go together. The Romans under the empire, which strikes back, sneered at the whole crowd of gods and goddesses whom their fathers had worshipped. They gave an implicit credence to sorcerers, astrologers, spirit rappers, exorcists, and every species of imposter and quack. The ceremonies of religion were performed with ritualistic splendor, but all belief in religion was dead and gone. And meanwhile, what became of the common multitude? They too, like the superiors, learned to disbelieve or question the power of the ancient deities. But as the mind absolutely requires some religion on which to rest, they gave their real devotion to all kinds of foreign deities, to Isis and Osiris, to Chaldean magicians, to Jewish exercises, to Greek quacks, and to the wretched vagabond priests of Cybele who infested all the streets with their oriental dances and tinkling tambourines. It's a description of Roman society just before it fell in the 
written by an English historian over a hundred years ago. So, you could say that history repeats itself. But we, like that ancient city which died in a very horrible way eventually, our generation is witnessing the collapse of civilization. As we mentioned last night, this is the first generation, Harry Blamos points out that people do not want their kids to have the, uh, the, the kind of education they're getting. They wish they had the same education they had, and that's the first time in, in hundreds of years where parents have not said, uh, at least when my kids get older, they're going to have a better education than I did. So what we have marked here then is the high point of society has been crossed, it is now in reversal, it is in decay, society is going backwards. And we are witnessing the decay then of 20th century civilization. And uh, when we see then this tremendous explosion, it took place perhaps in the late 60s, in the early 70s, many, many young people uh, got involved in some form of religious cult or weird deception. Some of you who are here have backgrounds in that. You were in one or more of various forms of weird thing. And uh, the Lord saved us all out of being weird, no matter what kind of weird background we had. Some of them just were normal weird, and others were weird, weird. But we're all strangers and alienated from God, and you're really a bunch of aliens. Without pointy ears, we were still alienated from God. It's a good word, isn't it? Alien. That's what happens when you get cut off from, uh, from the kingdom of God. You're really alienated. To be lost that way is to be profoundly lost. It's much more being an alien than, than being from one nationality, speaking one language, being in another nation that speaks a totally different language. That's alienation enough. But to be alienated from the heart and the life and the personality who designed and structured the universe is ultimate alienation. Here are some reasons why people give as to why kids in particular, sometimes adults, get into some strange religious cult. The first word is this word, alienation. We like that word today, alienation. It just simply means that a generation is lost. And that's a good word, by the way, for the 20th century, the word lost. Lost. Uh, that uh, we need love. It is a fundamental need for our lives. There's another word, probably not as strong, the word fellowship. We need a sense of acceptance and security and belonging to something. And remember what it was like when you first came out of grammar school? Or we don't have grammar schools in. US, what do you call them? Um, not junior high school. What's before that? Elementary, elementary school. I don't know why I call it elementary school. Uh, do you remember what it's like coming out of there and going to junior high school for the first time? Elementary school? I remember that. Boy, New Zealand, we went out, we called them, uh, went from kindergarten to primary school, we called it then. And then I went, we didn't have junior high school, I just through you kicking and screaming into high school, straight out of primary school. And then, when I first went from kindergarten to primary school, it was a shock, you know, mommy wasn't there anymore. 
she deposited you at the gate. You went, ah, you know, and I will return, she said, and eventually did, but it just shocked you, you know. And then after all of these years, she got it down. You could carry your own lunch bag and, you know, you were together. Then they fired you into another environment. There was a bunch of other people there. I remember my first day in high school. I arrived there with my short trousers on, uh, fresh out of primary school. And there were these beings, about 80 foot tall, walking around, you know, checking out the current crop of weeds. And I remember them, one tall senior saying, growing them smaller all the time, aren't they, after, you know, or something. And, uh, alienation. You have that especially when you're around high school. See, for a while you start learning, you know, all kinds of stuff, and you're just like a sponge, you're just absorbing stuff. And then around about oh, 12, 13, 14, 15, getting on a little, you start realizing, hey, you know, I'm brilliant. I've got all of this stuff, and it even applies someplace. And, uh, you know, by your junior year, you are really together. You senior year, you realize I'm not together at all. I'm about to be fired out again. And... Here it is, I know nothing, I see nothing, I understand nothing. And there you are, fired out in the university or maybe out in some other thing. And that is a tremendous sense of loss. That's why everybody drops into the accepted lifestyle in college. You know, one must be together and belong. So around about that time, if you meet some people that say, listen, don't you feel like you lost? You go, oh, baby, yeah, I really feel that. So it would be very easy at that point to connect up to something that looks like it really cares about you and wants you involved and, you know, this kind of thing. So it's a major area. And, uh, you know, especially if they train people how to smile. So you think, wow, that's love, you know, and get into it. Another thing is uh, disillusionment. find out there is no Santa Claus. And uh, it's a big word, isn't it? Disillusionment. Maybe there's a conflict between uh, parental claims of religiousness and not much example of that in practical living. Uh, so All you have to do is meet somebody who says, listen, don't you feel like the world has failed you? You'd say, oh, probably, you know, and there it is. Another one is spiritual hunger. See, I believe God created us with a hunger for... That's an automatic thing. The moment the spirit develops, there's hunger there physical body, when you're born, you have a physical body and automatically there is physical hunger there. You don't have to teach a baby to feel hungry. If he's alive at all, he's automated hungry. And then uh, there's a intellectual hunger that develops. Baby looks at his hands, quite unlike a kitten, like, what are these things? And, you know, what do I do with these things? And uh, try everything, you know, look at it, smell it taste it, listen to it, you know, you check out everything. That's automatic. 
And when there's your spiritual hunger, that develops automatically. When a person is old enough for their conscience to be sensitized and their spirit to awaken to God, you can call that the age of moral accountability, there is a hunger for the things of God. And in each case, just as in physical hunger, the baby assumes there is food out there. In intellectual hunger, it assumes that there is knowledge out there. So in spiritual hunger, the person assumes there is God there who can satisfy that spiritual hunger. And our generation, in the Western world, we have done more to take people away from their spiritual roots in the last 60 years than any other generation in history. We have marched them away. We gave them promises of technology would bring a brave new world, and it did bring it. It means you have to be brave to survive in the new world, is what eventually means. We gave a generation uh, technology instead of spirituality. We, if you went back and read some of the early H.G. Wells novels, for instance, the utopian novels, the um, Walden II novels, where uh, promises were made, for instance, do you remember seeing in magazines how they said that uh, in New York in the 1980s would have these uh, escalators instead of sidewalks. You know, and the big problem would be people getting enough exercise because they'd be so fat from just standing on these escalators. And, uh, right? Go to New York now, you'd be lucky if you find a sidewalk. And you get your exercise running away from the gangs. <laughs> so, uh, this was our technology. This is what happened to it. And as a result, our generation, uh, being fed with so much information, has developed a great hunger for practical solutions to life problems and the supernatural. And that has given us the birth of what we mentioned briefly last night of psychic technology, the marriage of occult mysticism with the technological. So any person who knows how to combine the supernatural with the practical is a person who can speak to this generation and have an ear because we've missed that. But here you are, you wander around, you, you talk to your parents, you say, you know, uh, I was reading this thing in the Bible, and Dad says, don't look to me, I don't read the Bible, you know. And then you go to your pastor and you say, what does this word mean? He says, well, that's a little bit too heavy for you to understand. And you go, oh, I don't know, I'll just... Then you meet some kid on the street, and he has eight million answers. And, oh, you're in the Bible. Well, I'm into that Bible and a number of other Bibles too and whichever Bible you want I'll lay it on you so you think wow this is it man the answer to all my needs and uh, we need some kind of devotional worship to give our lives to so that's another basic need uh, fourth one is idealism is a Christian an idealist a realist or a pragmatist well, he's all three. We can change that to idealism. He's an idealist because he has a set of values that are infinite. He's a realist because he ought to see the world the way it really is. He's a pragmatist because he does not believe in theory. He wants to see change. Idealism. Uh, Kids go out with stars in their eyes. We can change the world. We can change the world. Run into somebody who says, hey, you can do it by joining us. We will change the world then. Boy, they need to pick them up. And it seems like regular religious systems and politics don't seem to do it, so maybe you can combine the two and get a new thing going. And then 
experience, call it an experience hungry, generation that loves Disneyland and Star Wars has to have something day by day. You want something that zaps you, you don't want to sort of get up and this is another blah day. So you want something that the high, the daily plug-in, wow, this is really something else. And then two things, rebellion and intellectual pride. These are two major areas we look at specifically when we come on to seeing fundamental reasons why deception takes place. But rebellion, many, many people who get involved in some religious cult, and I, later we'll see a huge chunk of people who do that, have already had some kind of experience of confrontation with truth, perhaps presented in a false or legal way, which is rebelled against and then creates a whole mindset that makes it possible for a person to be deceived. Intellectual pride, we all want some answers, and it's really neat to know things that other people don't know. That gives you power, see? And um, in the 70s, it was a sin to, um, to say, wow. You couldn't say that. In the 60s, you could say that. You go, wow, that's so heavy. But you couldn't say that when everybody was into it. See, are you into jogging? Oh, yes, often. You know, I jog often. I have the joggers Bible. I've broken the wall, you know. So, you, are you into tennis? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy and I and Vaughn and uh, John and I play often. We see. You, you had to have, you had to be good at it, and you couldn't go, wow, never heard of that before. So, this whole thing, do you have the answers? Oh, yes, we have all of them. Here they are. You know, and you lay them out on people. That, that gave you a place to stand. You could go around saying, hmm, it's a pity you idiots do not know what I know. You know, this thing. Now, if you look carefully at these, these are either fundamental needs we have, like the need for wisdom, the need to, to be loved, the need for worship, the need uh, for power in our lives. These are all fundamental needs that have been perverted or twisted in some way or another. These needs must be met. If we do not uh, feel loved, if we have no power in our lives, if we do not feel we have a source of wisdom, which is to use a Watergate term, unimpeachable, uh, if we do not have something we can give our love and devotion to that is higher than ourselves, we will not psychically survive. These are spiritual needs, all right? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2 and verse 13, there is a scripture uh, where God sums up what has happened to, to the land. In Jeremiah 2.13, we have these words. I'm reading from the King Jimmy Version, the advanced... What's good enough for the Apostle Paul is good enough for me version. My people have committed two evils, says the Lord. One, 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There are two things God says uh, are the evils of his people. Number one, forsaking God. Number two, constructing a cistern that will not carry the water. So here God says these two things. If you forsake him, you will forsake the only person who can really satisfy spiritual thirst. That's number one. Forsake Christ, turn your back on him, and you will always be thirsty. You will generate a, an emptiness in your spiritual life that will be a continual vacuum you will never satisfy in any way, shape, or form. Forsake the one who is the source of all life and reality in the universe, and you'll forsake the only person who can really minister to your spiritual thirst. Secondly, you will begin to build a system, a system, not a cistern in this case, a system for conveying truth that cannot really do the job. But notice the order of this. It is not that you build a system first and then you forsake God. It is that you forsake God and then you construct a system to try and meet the need which you have just cut off. See that? So, we could say this. The rejection of truth, living or written, creates a spiritual vacuum. When you reject truth, we say living or written, living meaning Christ himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life, or written, what God says, say subjectively, by the Holy Spirit to your life, or objectively, by the written propositional scriptures, you forsake those two, and you, uh, with the rebellion that is created by that, you will begin to develop a system to try and plug the vacuum of the hole that leaves in your life. Okay? Mind's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says that heresy, heresis, denotes an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, substituted for submission to the power of truth. Heresy then begins when a person substitutes their own opinion for obeying the truth they know. Okay? Question. Why do people join cults? Some of you have been involved in any kind of religious system or perhaps an irreligious system that gave you some form of devotion. Scripture says a cult or a heresy or a sect is essentially a system Attempting to meet your needs based on the foundation of a refusal at one place or other to conform your life to the truth of what God says. Alright? Here is the way we're going to put it. It goes like this. Uh, intellectual deception follows Moral rejection. Moral rejection 
leads to intellectual deception. Now, what we think is the opposite today. We think if you get a weird idea, you will come up with a weird life. But the Bible says if you have a weird life by making weird choices, you will come up with a weird thought form to match your own choices. That's exactly verse of what we think today. In other words, uh, using somewhat Harry Kahn's words, people today say a man is crazy because he believes crazy things. The scripture says a man, and uh, no, we say his, his, uh, his crazy things that he does comes from the fact that uh, he's believing crazy things. Scripture says you believe crazy things because you do crazy things. In other words, when you live a crazy life, you will develop a set of thought forms around you that will justify your craziness. I don't know if you've ever ministered in a crazy place, but sometimes when you talk to a person who's in some kind of ward because they've been, you know, uh, feeding birds in a calendar or something like that, and they tell you their story. It's really an astonishing story. You know, I really shouldn't be in here. Actually, it's an international conspiracy. Really, you know? And they give you these incredible detailed stories of all of the thing that has finally put them in here, and they're really the most wonderful person in the entire world. It's just most of the world are against them. Boy, you finished an hour and a half, you think, boy, that is really far out. Perhaps I should be in here, and this dude should be out. Because very, very sophisticated system. Now, I want to give you now a thing that is foundational to this whole study. This study has peculiar application to those of you who are engaged in any form of evangelism that requires both theological content and apologetics. It has great practical application to this because it is an area I think that most of us are concerned about. Most of you come to this school for one reason. You do not want to do fried egg on the head evangelism. You know what fried egg on the head evangelism is? This is borrowed from um, Paul Little, the late Paul Little. Guy comes up to you, he's got a fried egg sitting on his head, and he goes, oh, well, you'll never guess what happened to me. And you look at him, you go, what happened to you? He says, you know, I used to be lonely, used to be on drugs and stuff. You go, yes. And he says, well, somebody told me that if you put a fried egg on your head, you will have happiness, peace, joy, and love. And oh, wow, I tried it, man, and it really works. And you go, what? And he says, I know you're not a believer. I used to be an atheist myself. But you remember John down the road? He was on drugs too. And he put a fried egg on his head, man. And he had peace and joy. So, you know, you don't want to knock it till you tried it, man. And you go, what? He says, look, let me just share with you something. Um, why don't you just go and try this? Why don't you go and get an egg? Uh, and get a pan, and you can put Crisco, margarine, or butter. There are many parts to truth. But <laughs> what you do is you, <laughs> you break this egg in the pan, 
and and I did it, man. I, I just did it. I put this egg in the pan, and then I fried it, and then put it on my head. And as I did this lovely, warm feeling began to spread down, you know, really heavy, man. Now, most of you have come to a YM SOE or DTS because you believe that evangelism ought to be an intelligent evangelism, not a, you know, I've been this experience and you should have it, see? And I am with you. I have spent now around 18 years of my life in apologetics and in college evangelism. That's my calling, to preach and minister to that section of people. And if anybody believes in an intelligent presentation of the truth, this dude here does. What I have to say to you then is not in opposition to that. What it instead is, is a very necessary correction to what we have done to this pursuit of truth in the Western world, which happens to be our major problem. And we'll explain that in a second. First, I want to read the, a couple of clips from other people who have been involved in similar ministries. A man called F.C. Spur, who was an evangelist to, to universities and colleges in England. Now, if you want experience in evangelizing colleges, then you need to go to Europe. Forget uh, the U.S. or even Australia, go to Europe. That's where, taking on apologetics, the average Christian would be as about equipped to deal with the questions there as a kid with a pea shooter would be to deal with a laser-equipped tank because that is the center of all the intellectual fubai that comes down in the world. And those of you who have been to colleges like in Germany and in France and places like that will be aware of this. England is bad enough. But uh, this is a man who ministered in Europe and in England in universities, and this is what he said. Is it not here that so many have fallen into confusion? We have imagined our first business is to convince man's reason, and when we have succeeded in that, the rest will follow. We ought to by this time to have learned better. I happen to have spent a good deal of time during my lengthening life in lecturing on Christian apologetics and in holding debate. I would not like to say this has been wasted effort, but I am bound to say I can trace very few conversions to this way of working. Argument begets argument, and for every difficulty you solve, another is raised. There is no end indeed to it. And then he says, let us remember that Christ said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind. The mind comes last, not first. There is nothing capricious about this. It is the natural order in which love develops. Christianity assumes that men can respond to the love of God, but that love must be attractive before it can be shown to be rational. To set theology before man as a first step to God is a mistake, as it is equally a mistake to cancel out theology as unnecessary. And then here's from another man. Answering a man's questions and excuses, uh, arguments and excuses, has absolutely nothing to do with witnessing. It is not even the same category. This is not witnessing, it is debate. 
The Christian is then actually in the role of defending Christianity. When we use verses of Scripture to answer arguments and excuses, we're actually magnifying problems rather than Christ. We have cut across one of the greatest traits of human nature, and that is this. A man will never admit that he is wrong. The best opportunity I think I ever had was in a chemistry class. There was an hour between two chemistry classes. And chemistry were my favorite subject, so I was in this class. We got talking to somebody. I can't even remember what it was. It was something remotely related to chemistry that eventually turned into Christ, you know. That's sort of the way it happens. And I got talking to just one person and then somebody else came up and sort of started listening and we got involved there and then it grew until the whole chemistry class, the whole 400 people for the next class were all around and I'm laying all this stuff out, see? And I had an hour, I mean an entire hour before the, and it just, as people came in, they all got into the thing. It was a wild thing. So, brother, I pulled out every tool in the book, you know, this one and then that one. And, and what was interesting is this. I know the arguments were powerful. I know that. I discarded the weak ones, the shabby ones, and stuck with the mainline ones. And the wild thing was this. When it was finished, there was nothing people could say. So they just walked away. And I went home on the bus that later that afternoon after the class and I started to weep and I said to God, what in the world is wrong? I know they, I know they understood. But they didn't change. Nobody went out and said, wow, you know, brother, I need to get... What is wrong? And this is what the Lord said to me, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. That's what he said to me in the bus. So, I have not given up on apologetics nor on theology. I've given the last 15 years of my life to intense study in all those areas. But what I want to share with you today, I believe, is the critical need in the Western world because we have blown something so vital and so basic that we, we don't even know where we went wrong. Have you ever been bothered by this? A person who's a Christian, um, apparently loves God, goes off to a college for four years and comes back destroyed. That bothers me. Here's another one. A person who's a Christian, called the ministry, goes to a Bible college and comes back after four years destroyed. That bothers me even more. Now, the thing, uh, looking in that, why do people die when they learn things? I came to three conclusions. Number one, maybe because what they learn is not true. It is false. And if you learn falsity, that's going to kill you somewhere or another. Secondly, maybe you don't, and this is the key ones, maybe you don't practice what you learn. What you learn is true, maybe you don't practice it. Or thirdly, the person who's teaching you doesn't practice. Yeah. And those to me are the three major reasons why people die. They die out Maybe because they get the wrong thing, or two, they don't do the right thing, or the person who's teaching them doesn't do the right thing, uh, doesn't do what they're teaching. Right? Those three. That's pretty simple. Now, I want to give you now, uh, again, a study I've used in one other 
area, and that's the study series we did here before on psychic technology. I want to give you this thing on Sh Sham, Ham, and JPEG. This is something some of you are already acquainted with, and I briefly sketched it in our introduction to the 1980s last night, and I want to do it again. Indirectly, Dr. Momstead got me onto this by sending the book Noah's Three Sons to Tom, who got hold of me during one of the SOEs and said, have you ever read this book? And I said, no. He said, you really like it. He said, I'm a student of anthropology and I, I really enjoyed it. So I borrowed it off him and, and almost uh, fell into the sin of covetousness in the first, or say, perhaps I did fall into the sin of covetousness. Uh, if if he had not begged, I would have ripped the book off and taken it with me. But eventually, I obtained a copy, and it's a dynamite little book. It's called Noah's Three Sons. It's written by a man called Arthur C. Custance. In this book, Custance, who has got a doctorate in anthropology and a master's in Oriental and Eastern languages, Middle East languages, um, does a study on the three sons of Noah, and he says, I believe that God gave to these three boys the three significant contributions to human history. To the Shemitic peoples, God gave the task of revelation. And that seems to be their major contribution to the whole history of the human race. And it is significant that today the three major religious systems in the world that involve obedience to a personal moral God who reveals himself and requires moral conformity to his revelation are all Shemitic in origin. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all Shemitic in origin. The second one is interesting. The sons of Ham in uh, secular anthropology today are usually tied down to the black races. But in Custance's study, based on Genesis 10, he believes that the Hermetic peoples were much broader than just simply the uh, black races of the world and that it involved many of what we call the so-called colored races. I don't know what color is. I'm part Maori. I'm kind of murky pink on some days. But he said that the, uh, the Hermetic peoples were the most uh, powerful stream in human history and what they seemed to do genetically to go into hostile environments and conquer them and bring them totally under subjection to their specialty was this, technology. Now technology we tend to think of today as electronics or machinery, but technology in its simplest form is simply the practical solution of life problems. And you can find some, some area of the world where it's just so hostile, you can't possibly think anybody could survive there. And hermetic descendants have gone in and just used every piece of available stuff there and built a, a working civilization out of it. Now, on the thing on the curse of Ham, by the way, Custon says it wasn't his color, 
And it didn't have anything to do particularly with him being a servant because the phrase servant of servant is not a bad word. Who is a servant in the scriptures? Christ is a servant. King of kings, servant of servants. He is, he is the ultimate on both sides. He said that the curse on him was really that the results of his service, the benefits of his service, would not primarily accrue to him or his descendants, but would instead be inherited by the Gentile nations. And that was a curse. Not that he'd be servant, but the results of his service would not bring prime benefits other than the immediate solution of that to the Hermetic peoples. And uh, he has four or five pages that show around 95% of the technology of today has been developed in the early days by Hermetic peoples. So we have, you know, I mean everything from, you know, brain surgery to uh, enemas to uh, uh, typing to uh, rockets to you name it. You know, all the basics. I think the Jandal world came up with two original things. One is the water-driven, uh, the windmill, and another one is this, uh, the, the screw that transfers water. I forget what that's called. You know, we... No, it transfers water. You turn a bit and it... No, it's not a turbine. It's like a... Oh. If you turn a crank, a thing goes like this, and it carries water. Well, it's kind of an auger in a pipe. That water flows through. Auger drills holes and things like that. But this doesn't drill holes, it just carries stuff. Anyway, you ever tried to build an igloo? Very interesting. I haven't. <laughs> but have you ever thought how people make an igloo? Igloo is very interesting. Here it is, made out of ice. Yeah. How do you get these blocks in up here? <laughs> One person can build an igloo. One person. He doesn't fill the thing up with snow and then put blocks on the outside, hollow it out. How do they make igloos? And that's a, that's a problem. That is a technological problem. See that? Another one is, out, and here we are on the islands, um, how do we tie, join two pieces, they're my ancestors of Maoris, and somehow they got from this area somewhere to New Zealand. When they got there, they ate all the Moriori's that were there, and uh, through this gentle precedent, took over the country. So I tell people, you better watch out, I don't backslide. The only connection I have with religious things is my great-grandparents used to eat missionaries. <laughs> if you're going to make a boat to cross all that sea, and you don't have glues, super glues, or nails, how do you put together two planks of wood that are going to take a lot of pressure. How do you bind them together without glues, maybe even without caulking materials, to make a waterproof seal that's going to be under pressure? How do you do that? Now, that's a technological problem. And we tend to think of technology machines and electronics. But technology can be on the very fundamental levels, just starting from no place. If you sent out a man from the United States into the middle of Antarctica, or the Arctic, just equipped with his own ideas, you'd probably die very quickly. 
most of the best ideas have been borrowed from people already in the area, in the, in the um, Arctic, for instance, and uh, just adapted. So those ideas have to be made first. The igloo is built, by the way, this way. It's built on a slant so that each block rests against the other and it's built on an ascending spiral. So we see, it's a cool little thing, but somebody had to think of that first, and that's where the genius of the technology comes in. And when they uh, bind two things together like this, there's a technical formula looking on the edge. This is what the thing looks like. Here's the two planks. What they do is they split a log in half, round log. Split it in half and put one half on that side, one half on that side, and drill holes through there and there and bind the log with lines. And there are all kinds of sophisticated equations on pressure, which is called science. That's the theory of technology. And somebody built that first, and that's watertight. And it's done without glues. Just binds and logs. That's some examples of that. Do you know they had batteries in Egypt? Electroplating? Von Daniken thinks they fell out of a UFO. Well, what does he know? That's a hermetic peoples. Thirdly, we have the Gentile nations, or Japheth, which of course includes Greece and Rome and uh, India. Japheth. Sometimes it's called Japheth. India, for instance, their ancestor they, of India is called Yepetos. So this is what the Bible calls the Gentile nations. Now, a great chunk of us here in Hawaii, we've got a real mix. We've got some shamanic people. We've got some hams, so I can tell by the way you act. And uh, some J a lot of Japhets, all mixed up. This is the U.S. of A., the greatest melting pot in the world. Send me your tired, wretched masses, breathing, yearning to breathe free. Now, here we are. Customs points out that these always appear in this order in Scripture. Shem, Ham, Japheth. And he believes uh, that uh, there are parallels to this right through um, the New Testament. This last one, of course, is illumination. And Japheth's great strength has been information systems, teaching, and philosophy. That's been the strengths of the Japhetic civilization. And you look at Greece and India, for instance, yes. Could you make a distinction between Revelation and Illumination? Yes, I will. I'll, I'll make that very clear in a little while when we come back. Illumination is essentially information. It is teaching processes, systems of teaching. It is philosophical systems and explanation systems. Revelation is a moral content thing which requires change. It is the speaking from an infinite source down to a finite source, and it is not primarily geared to explain, but to be obeyed. The difference. One requires moral change. The other one simply requires understanding. If we wanted to put these two into one simple word, we could say this one here has to do with love. God speaking and us doing it. This one here has to do with wisdom. Love and wisdom together uh, 
plus the power of this one linked in give you holiness. All right? Now, back in the scriptures, and I have to go through this very quickly. For an amplification of this, you could look at the tape on psychic technology. Who were the first group of people that came to see Jesus? Remember? Forget your Christmas cards. Who was the first group of people who knew that Jesus had come? Forget your Christmas cards. Yeah, don't, don't think of your Christmas cards. We always think of Christmas cards with these wise men coming around the baby. Who were the first ones? The shepherds. The shepherds, the shepherds. They were up there washing their socks by night, and uh, this angelic choir singing Handel's Messiah did this whole neat thing. And they were schematic. They were sons of Shem. Just all Israeli. How did they learn that Jesus was born? What did they study to know that was going to happen? They knew by revelation. God spoke to them in a revelation and showed them through that angelic choir, unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The second group of people, now you can look at some of your Christmas cards, the second group of people who specifically came asking to see Jesus, by the way, did not arrive until he was a child. It's a different word used. So at least a year, perhaps even two had gone past before these men arrived. Who were they? Customs. There's a chapter on this and believes they're hermetic peoples. They're kings of the East. They're a man, obviously, of great power. And uh, by the way, in the hermetic civilization, the god of Shem, they call him Allah or Jehovah or Christ, you know, whatever name has been given, has always been a god who is moral and who requires moral obedience from his people. But the gods of the Hermetic peoples have been gods of power. And what is interesting is the gods of the Japhetic peoples have been gods of illumination. And realization and awareness and perception has been the the great thing that the gods do for you here in, in the Japhetic civilizations. Okay, these wise men who came are obviously, um, the Bible calls them Eastern kings. They were men of great power and they were men who discovered that Jesus uh, had been born by the application of various technologies of the day. We've seen his star in the East and we've come to worship him. They were the second group of men who came. Bible calls them astronomers, so whatever that was. Thirdly, the last group of men who specifically came and asked to see Jesus did not come until Jesus was almost ready to be crucified. At a certain feast day, a certain group of men came specifically asking to see Jesus. They sought him out and they were Japhetic. Can you remember who they were? Certain Greeks. Now, what was the Greeks' characteristic? We looked at Greek civilization. What was the one great glory of Greece? Their wisdom. They were a, a culture built on intellectual gigantism. They were really brilliant people. And uh, they came looking to Jesus because they had questions to ask him. Now, what is interesting again is the order. First, Shem. Then, Ham. Then, Japheth. When Jesus was crucified... Uh, sons of Shem said his blood be on us and our children and the uh, Japhetic civilizations Rome stood up and put the nails in and there's a neat thing happens in between as Christ 
is being is going on to the cross, the sin of the whole world is about to take on his shoulders. Somebody is pulled in by a Roman to help Jesus carry his cross. Do you remember who it was? Simon of Cyrene, son of Ham. In there, serving. And even then the gospel goes out. The church begins, the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Who does it? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit come on first. Who are those people in the upper room? They're Jews. This is a great Jewish party from all over the world. They come in there for that historic celebration, that feast. And on that group of people, the Holy Spirit fell first. And then later on it went to a Roman soldier. His name was Cornelius. Do you remember that? He had a vision one time when he was praying. And the angel said, go and ask Peter. He'll explain it to you. And in between, it almost looks like an insert. Philip is out, citywide awakening. All kinds of neat things are happening. God calls him out of that citywide awakening and says to him, go into the desert. He goes in there. He arrives by waterhole just as a man standing in his chariot opening the book of Isaiah. And Philip comes up to him and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless somebody explain it to me? Who is this man? He's a man of great power. He's hermetic. He is Queen Candace, who believes, treasurer. He's a hermetic man. And there it is, again the order. Shem, Ham, Japheth. As a matter of fact, look at the Gospels. The first Gospel is Matthew's Gospel. It is eminently a Shemitic Gospel. It is written to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And it is filled with revelation. It is a book which has many times running through it this phrase, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and then it lays a prophecy on you. All kinds of prophecies. Revelation statements run through the book of Matthew, and it is eminently Shemitic. It's written, actually, by a Jew. Matthew. The second, and it has a, a pedigree of Christ that traces him back to Abraham. See? And what is interesting is this. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, we've only got two or three minutes to finish this. Um, if you look at the genealogy in Matthew, it starts with Abraham and goes forward. So it's, it's a revelation-oriented gospel. It starts in the past and projects forwards. Then you come to Luke's gospel, written by a Gentile. Luke, a Greek doctor. And this is eminently a gospel of illumination. He's a teacher. You can tell that by the way he starts. Teachers always take about 20 minutes to get around to what they're actually saying. And this is how Luke opens up. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they have delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of the things wherein you have been instructed. Where was I? Oh, yes. There was in the days of Herod. See? That is full-on teaching. And it takes him about three chapters to even get on to the beginning. Namely, the genealogy. Oh, yes, here it is here. 
And where it does is it starts with Jesus and it goes back in the past. An explanation. All the way back to Adam. And what about Mark? Mark's gospel. They didn't even have a genealogy. A servant is not known by his pedigree. He is known by his service. And there is no genealogy in Mark at all. It is a very short gospel. And in Mark's gospel, it is loaded with power. In Mark's gospel, uh, things happen immediately and straightway. I mean, Jesus arrives in a boat, and it's three and a half miles in the ocean. And straightway, it is at shore. <laughs> Boom, like this. So, it's only 16 chapters. They're dynamite. They're loaded. They're filled with action and power statements. In the book of Mark, Christ appears as a man of power who serves. See, we don't associate service with power, but the Bible does. Puts him in total, uh, not contradistinction, but in, in uh, apposition to each other, not opposition. All right, time is running down. All I want to do is say this for this first thing. There is an order in Scripture. That order is revelation, practical service, or the practical solution of the life problem, or technology, illumination. That is a divine order. That is the way God speaks. As a matter of fact, Hebrew is a language eminently suited to obedience. It's easy to say in Hebrew, go and get a donkey. And the concept is, go and get that donkey, right? However, it's not a tremendously great language for doing abstruse philosophical concepts. Greek is the language you want for that. And what is significant is, this first chunk of the Bible is written in Hebrew, a language of revelation obedience. The last chunk of it is written in Greek, a language eminently suited for illumination. So even when you pick it up, you can't help but run into that order. Johnny Ortiz points out, how many you got? 30 seconds? 15? 10? Countdown? One! Okay, one. One sec, no, one minute. Points out that today we teach this way. Like we say this. No, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you what we say later. At this point, there's an order. Revelation, technology, practical service, illumination. That is divine order. It is not the order of the Western world. And what happens when you reverse that order is the subject of our next session. Okay? Let's close. Father, we ask you to take these few things we've looked at this morning and set lights in our heart. We pray that you'll break down barriers and deep-seated problems so deep on levels so deep we have not sensed them before. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that was part one. This was a, a session given to some uh, YWAMers in Hawaii. And uh, he, as you can tell, he was he was uh, having to take a break here, but he was going to come back and finish up. And hopefully, with, uh, with if everything goes as planned, we should have that up next week so you can hear the second part. And uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. This is Jim Patton saying bye-bye. <laughs>